I'm very glad to be with you all today here in Concord, less than a week, actually, after Howard and I returned from this really intense, very powerful, very packed week in El Salvador with a group of religious leaders, primarily but not exclusively Unitarian Universalist leaders. For some time now, through the work of the College of Social Justice, the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee has been inviting clergy and religious educators and leaders within our faith to join us in a variety of opportunities that can help deepen and equip and sustain their activism for justice as a key part of their ministries when they return home. And so I need to also say that I am grateful to you as a congregation for supporting Howard in taking those steps forward in his own ministry. This is the second journey he has accompanied us on. The first was a year ago in Honduras, and he really has become quite an essential part of our religious leadership now uh, for justice uh, in our whole denomination. So thank you for supporting that very key part of Howard's ministry. Each time I undertake a journey to Central America, like the one to El Salvador, from which we just returned, I find myself struck again by both the courage and the resilience of the human rights activists that we meet and along whom, alongside whom we walk for a short period when we're there. These are people, by and large, who continue to lift their voices and to organize their communities in the face of unrelenting threats and often in the face of direct violence, like that that took the life of Oscar Romero that you heard about during the children's message. Meeting them, I find that I always question my own capacities as I wonder if I had to confront that kind of violence, if I had to live daily with that kind of threat, would I still be a political activist? Would I be able to be that brave? And likewise, I notice the power of their resilience, their capacity to persevere, no matter how many obstacles or roadblocks or setbacks they seem to hit. As somebody whose work and ministry now are specifically focused on human rights and social justice, the question of how we too, in what seem our rather more ordinary lives, might cultivate resilience is one that occupies my thoughts quite often, as I'm sure it does for many of you. Ours is an activist faith, and most of us feel compelled to do all that we can to respond to the grievous wounds that we see in the world around us. But sometimes, I would say, like these days, it can feel impossible to even know which way to look, as each day's dose of news brings us new things that worry us or elevate our levels of outrage. Even the most buoyant among us can begin to feel weighed down. And so I ponder this question of resilience, of how we stay faithful and steadfast, how we keep on raising our voices and putting our hands to the work of justice without burning out. For me, the pathway has had to do with spiritual practice and a commitment to anchor my justice activism in what that practice teaches me. 
There are, of course, dozens of kinds of spiritual practice. Gathering weekly together at worship is a spiritual practice. So is meditation in its many forms, movement practices like yoga, and prayer in a wide variety of forms. They can all help us to feel steadier and sturdier as we confront the injustices of our own times and places. It is for that reason that whenever we organize immersion journeys, like the one to El Salvador, we begin each day along that journey with some silence, some song, and some prayer. The first of the gifts that this kind of daily practice brings us, whether we are in unfamiliar and challenging settings or in the daily walk of our lives, is that it helps us to be more centered. That is a word that for me evokes a very concrete image, which is of a lump of clay on a potter's wheel. If you have ever tried your hand at pottery, or if you've ever watched even a video of a potter at work with a wheel, you know that the first thing that has to happen is you take a lump of clay and you smack it down on the wheel, more or less in the middle. You start the wheel spinning, and then you have to cradle that lump and move it this way and that way until it is absolutely perfectly centered in the wheel. When it is centered, the pressure and intention that the potter brings to bear on the clay will create something balanced and useful and beautiful. But when the clay is off-center, no matter how skillful you are and no matter how hard you try to shape it, it will wobble and fold, come out crooked or fall apart. In my own many times of being off-centered and out of balance, I can feel myself wobble and fold with alarming clarity. It is not possible to even move through the daily chores of a normal life with very much grace and effectiveness, much less turn myself to the injustices of the world around me. The more we try to move forward when we are off-center, the more likely we are to feel frustrated and angry, and the more likely it is that we will unintentionally cause harm. Our capacity to notice that we do sometimes cause harm despite all of our marvelously good intentions can give rise to a certain level of humility. This is a second gift that arises from spiritual practice, although one that we are usually not eager to receive. Humility is a lesson brought to us by the image of our interdependent web as well. We are drawn to the truth illustrated in the metaphor of that web that we are all connected to this vast universe of ours and that we are interdependent with all of life. This awareness can be a source of both comfort and awe. But we are not just linked to the power and the beauty around us, to the mountains, to the trees, to the stars. The interdependent web we claim and lift up is a beautiful thing, but also a relentless one. It links us to what is broken in our world, as well as those things that bring healing. It speaks to us of consequences, 
of how one thing depends on another, how one thing follows from another. Therefore, on the large scale, our web reminds us that we are part of a small and finite earth. It says that the air in Australia, filled with smoke rising from those awful fires, is not as far as we might think from the air that fills our lungs right now. It cautions that water polluted by mines in Brazil is not entirely separate from the water that will fall months later as rain here in Concord. The strands of our web are a tangle that reaches not just across distance, but also backwards and forward in time to remind us, for instance, that the violence plaguing a tiny country like El Salvador is linked to decades of U.S. policy there that supported an appallingly violent military. But there's a small scale, a personal scale, to that intricate web as well that calls us to remember that whatever it is we oppose and want to confront out there in the world has threads that link it directly back to us as well. Whatever we want to nurture and help create out there in the world, our practice ground for it, the place where we cultivate it first, is here within us. Our capacity to confront things or to nurture them out there in the world depends on our capacity to see and confront or nurture those same things within ourselves. How will we heal the hostility in our country's politics today if we nurse our own anger and self-righteousness toward those we see as our opponents? How will we challenge the immense gap between wealth and poverty if we will not see the little seeds of greed, the consumerism that we continue to feed within ourselves? How can we possibly make peace in the world if we ignore the sniping going on in our own minds? This calls us to a kind of spiritual honesty. When we're willing to be alert to our own flaws, we can be more deliberate and careful with what we say, with how we enter a space, how we engage with those on the other side of an issue from us. When we bring ourselves to deliberately remember that we are connected not only to the world's goodness, but to its brokenness. It expands our capacity to then move with more care and clarity into the messy, complicated, challenging work of justice-making. A third thing that arises if we ground our justice engagement in spiritual practice is an awareness of the centrality and power of relationships which is really another way of saying the centrality and power of love. Many of you will be familiar with the work of Brian Stevenson, a human rights lawyer and the author of Just Mercy, which was our UU Common Read a couple of years ago. 
Stevenson often talks about how he discovered his life's purpose, which is advocating for imprisoned men who are living on death row. The heart of his story is the first encounter that he ever had with such a condemned prisoner when Stevenson himself was just a green young law student. He spent hours with the man that he was there to see, and at the end of that time, he had a transformative moment. As the guards led the prisoner back to his cell, chained heavily, that man, that prisoner, living under such duress, suddenly threw back his head and began to sing the old hymn, Higher Ground. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Hearing that voice echoing down the corridor of that horrible place, Stevenson says, I suddenly knew that my journey to higher ground was tied to his journey to higher ground. If he didn't get there, I wouldn't get there either. And he said, this is what happens when we move closer to the world's problems. Proximity changes us. Proximity changes us. Because it makes injustice something that is no longer abstract or intellectual at all. It is instead something lodged in the lives and the circumstances and sometimes in the very flesh and blood of people whose names we know, whose faces we recognize, whose hands we have touched. In the last couple of years, my work with UUSC has brought me to another country in Central America, to Honduras, four times. The first time, when UUSC received an urgent call for accompaniment because of violent threats against our human rights partners there, when I decided to say yes and go there on about 48 hours' notice, I was afraid. I had lived in Central America, but I had never been to Honduras. And like most of you, I was aware that it has one of the highest homicide rates of any country on the planet. That's one of the reasons, of course, why so many people are fleeing it and contributing to the crisis of migration jammed up now at our border. So I felt some fear. But... These were UUSC human rights partners who asked us to come, organizations that we're supporting because they're fighting for human rights within those countries that are driving migration so radically. They believe, and we believe, that people have the fundamental right to live safely in the place they call home. So I also felt a sense of determination and commitment But looking back on that first time, if I'm being completely honest, I would have to say that as I got ready to go, it was all about me. I was thinking about my feelings. I was thinking about my commitment. I was feeling kind of good about myself. Because after all, there I was, going, despite the dangers, being determined, going to a company, being in solidarity. 
The week I spent there that first time shifted my perspective and my understanding in many more ways than I can share with you here today. And it has impacted my solidarity work and even my understanding of what solidarity means ever since. But by far the most important thing that happened on that first journey to Honduras is that I got connected almost immediately to the people there, to the men and the women who are the real targets of that violence. These are people who, to a degree that I can scarcely imagine, have found within themselves the courage to rise and speak and act for justice in the face of daily and lethal violence. That's what real solidarity looks like. Their open-hearted welcome to me, their capacity to share their lives and to let me be of them and among them for that little time, their laughter, their joy, even in the teeth of that kind of violence, just completely eclipsed all of my stories and inner dramas and gave rise to a kind of fierce love. This is what proximity does to us. Suddenly, these are our people. Our commitment, then, goes so much deeper because it doesn't arise from political conviction or an abstract sense of justice. It comes from love. When Howard and I were in El Salvador last week, by far the most intense day came on Saturday, which we spent out of San Salvador, about a six-hour bus ride out of San Salvador. And we spent it with Salvadoran partners in the mountains around a little town called El Mazote. That town was the site of a horrific massacre at the hands of the Salvadoran military in 1981 that took the lives of a thousand civilians, over half of them babies and children. We met some of the survivors who still today, decades later, are awaiting any acknowledgement of what they suffered and of what they lost. The next day, on Sunday morning, we gathered outside for our time of centering, looking out over the forest and the mountains that are achingly beautiful and have seen such unspeakable damage done. We sang then, together, a song in Latin, Ubi Caritas, a simple song that says, just like the opening hymn, actually, that we sang today, the words say, where love and compassion are, there God will be. Salvadoran and U.S. voices wove into harmony and sailed out into that mountain air as a kind of testimony and affirmation that we have this strength, too, this capacity to choose love, to lift against the damage we human beings visit on each other so often. The more willing we are to let that love in, the more we expand our sense of us 
and the more liberated we can be from our stingy little demons of self-importance. We do the work because it's ours to do. But we do it knowing ours is just one small part of a vast and powerful effort held by this immense family of ours, all of us, working toward the healing of the world. A few years ago, I had the privilege of hearing Ta-Nehisi Coates deliver a public talk in Washington, D.C., shortly after his book, Between the World and Me, came out. During the question and answer period that followed on his talk, a man came up to the microphone and, I think, dazzled by Coates, as we kind of all had been, he leaned into the mic and he looked earnestly at Coates and he said, have you ever thought of running for political office? There was some laughter, including from Coates, but then his response was so perfect. He said, look, I'm not a politician. I'm not even really very much of a political activist. I'm a writer and a poet. That work is mine to do. That's the little acre that I've been given. And my job is to sharpen my tools and then till that little acre to the very best of my ability, trusting that all around me, others are tending their small acre. We will not all be doing the same thing, but together we will make the world we're dreaming of. Together we will make the world we're dreaming of. Not by falling into the burnout delusion that it is up to us to do everything, but by being clear enough, centered enough, to see the small acre that is ours to tend and the gifts and tools that are ours to bring to that work. As the poet in our reading reminds us, among other wonders of our lives, we are alive with one another. We walk here in the light of this unlikely world that isn't ours for long. May we spend generously the time we are given. Amen. <laughs>